All right, everybody, let's go ahead and find our places. Get back to your seats. Go ahead and take your Bibles. And if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're doing this study in the book of 2 Corinthians. We are in chapter number 7. We'll be finishing chapter number 7 today. As you're getting that ready, let me start off just by setting this up by asking you a question. Let me ask you this. If and ever you find yourself in a situation where you and your spouse are upset with each other, I know that probably never happens to you, but theoretically, if it ever did, how would you react? How would you respond? What would you do? Would you, are you the type that would fight and yell and attack them? Are you the, don't answer, holy cow. <laughs> and don't elbow the person next to you. Are, maybe you're the type that's the opposite. Maybe you just hide and shut down and don't talk at all because you think, well, if I start talking, it's going to get ugly. So this is your way, you know. Can I just tell you that both strategies are horrible. They're just horrible. Um, that's not really what we need to do, obviously. And so an introductory statement in your notes I have is this. Relationships are all about effective communication. I think you know that. It's very, very important in any relationship that's important to you that you have open and effective communication. Actually, the worst thing you can possibly do in a, in a relationship, at least any relationship that you care about, is to quit talking, right? And so whether that be with your spouse or whether that just be with a close friend or most certainly whether that be with the Lord, the worst thing you could do is just shut down and quit communicating, right? So even when it's hard, even when the subject matter is not pleasant, even when the, the, the topic you're discussing isn't what you'd prefer to discuss, it's always better to communicate than to not. It just, it just is. And what we need to do is we just need to learn how to effectively communicate with one another. That's really what we need to learn. And so uh, I'm taking today's title from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 where it says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So that's going to be our title today, Speaking the Truth in Love. And we're going to see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 in just a second here. But, but back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 occurs in a, in a series of verses, which is one really long sentence from verse 11 like down to verse 16, that's all about our growth in Christ. In other words, speaking the truth in love and keeping that balance is a critical component to your growth and development in the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll also help you in all of your social interactions as well. But today what we're going to do is we're going to address this idea in the context of ministry. Because that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. 2 Corinthians is all about ministry. And, and ministry, although recently we've done a really good job of emphasizing to you all the importance of evangelism, the importance of sharing the gospel with people who don't know the Lord so that they can have the chance to know the Lord and have eternal life secured before it's too late for them. Uh, that's critically important. But all ministry is not just evangelism to the lost. Sometimes ministry is to the saints, Right? Sometimes ministry is to the body of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 15. 
it says, uh, talking about the house of Stephanus. And this guy, it says that he was the first fruits of Achaia and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now, a lot of people are addicted to a lot of things, but that's something you can be addicted to. You can be addicted to the ministry, right, of the saints. Now, what's odd about this is, is that frequently and surprisingly, the ministry to the body of Christ sometimes can be the hardest one to carry out. Like you wouldn't think so. You'd think it'd be easier because everybody agrees, everybody believes the same stuff, everybody's on the same page, everybody's pointing in the same direction, but it doesn't work out that way. And uh, sometimes it's hard, and, and sometimes it's harder than working with lost people. And you say, well, why is that? Well, I think the reason is, is because when we look around the family of God, the truth of the matter is we expect more from each other, don't we? Like we expect that if you've already surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ, we expect that if you're a student of the Bible, we expect that if you say you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, that there's a certain standard of behavior that you're going to follow in your life. And when you don't follow that standard of behavior, it's more frustrating, it's more disappointing, it's more hurtful. We expect lost people to act like lost people. Lost people act like lost people, and we're like, oh, there's lost people. They don't know any better. Right, So you have tolerance for them, and sometimes we don't have tolerance for each other. And this is a challenge, right? This is a real challenge that we have. And uh, I would say that especially when a brother or sister in Christ, especially when they want to, you know, promote or advertise themselves as being very mature, and then they behave in ways that are very immature, well, it's, it's a challenge. Well, as we've come through 2 Corinthians, every chapter's had a different theme, and These themes deal with the different aspects of ministry that the Lord wants us to know about. And the theme for chapter 7 we saw last week is the idea of comfort. And that's what we're going to see as we wrap it up today as well. And the idea is is that we need to have comfort. It's necessary, and we need to make make it available and, and in action in our lives as ministers of Jesus Christ. And the reason why that's so critically important is because, well, ministry can be uncomfortable. You're frequently confronting people with shortcomings, challenges, dare I say, sins in their lives. You're pointing out the righteousness of God, and you're pointing out why people need the righteousness of God. In other words, because they fall short of it. Well, those kinds of conversations and confrontations where you have to point something out that's negative, well, that's not pleasant. That's uncomfortable. So how are we going to find comfort in the midst of this kind of of a ministry. This, this is the challenge to represent righteousness faithfully before the Lord and yet still find the comfort that we need and the joy in doing that. I think that we're going to see some of that as we walk through these verses that we have here today. We're going to jump in at verse 8. We left off last time at verse 7. We're going to go down to the end of the chapter, so if you'll just follow along, I'm going to read starting in verse 8. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, 
What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I'm not ashamed, but as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. So there's this ongoing story that we began last time. We'll describe the story as we go. But there's a couple of really important application points that I pray you'll get today. If you haven't previously understood it, today is going to be a really important day. So let's ask the Lord to help us with that, and then we'll jump into our outline. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture, Lord, there's there's a lot to be understood, and, and Lord, really, when we see that Paul is representing this difficult conversation he had to have with the Corinthians and the way it worked out for them, well, it's a, it's a beautiful story, but Lord, it doesn't always work out that way. And so, while ministry is challenging and while ministry has these things in front of us, we want to represent you effectively. We want to be righteous. We want to be accurate. We want to be faithful. But at the same time, we want to be comforting and comforted. We want to know that what we're doing is the right thing, and we want to see people receive it in the manner in which it's offered. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. As many as there are of us listening, Lord, I know there's that many different scenarios and situations and unique sets of circumstances. Everybody's got their own deal going on, and Lord, only you can speak to each and every one of us individually, specifically concerning the thing that we need. I pray that you'll do that today in Christ's name. Amen. All right, there's four points we'll look at today. And the first one, it's going to be all about communication. The first one is to communicate your rebuke. That's where the story starts in verse number 8. Paul says, For though I made you sorry with a letter... Well, okay, a letter is further defined in the same verse as an epistle. The word epistle means a letter, and he's obviously referring to the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. The letter of 1 Corinthians that we studied a year or so ago, uh, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know is is a letter that he wrote that describes many errors in the Corinthian church, a very carnal, self centered church. And with all of these errors, every chapter, there's another issue, another reason why the church was all messed up and thinking about themselves. And so Paul had to correct and rebuke them several times in several manners for several different reasons. And so he's like, he's referring back to that thing because this is the follow-up communication to that first communication. For though I made you sorry with a letter. Man, I wrote you that letter and, uh, well, you know, it made you sorry. I, I realize that that was the immediate response that you had and And I get it because you'd have to imagine that if you were among the Corinthian church and you received a letter from the great Apostle Paul and it was kind of in your face, that it had to have been tough. And that's because of a simple principle that we all are aware of, and that's that bad news brings sorrow. We know that. 
Bad news doesn't bring joy. Bad news brings sorrow, right? I mean, especially if it's personal, especially if it's directed at you and the things you are doing. General bad news is generally bad, but man, specifically, wow, that's, that's sometimes tough to swallow. And so he goes on in that verse 8, and he says, For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry. And so Paul begins to describe this situation. He says basically that when I saw that my letter that I wrote you made you all sad, well, that fact that you're now sad made me sad. And it made me so sad that I kind of was thinking I wish I hadn't written it. I mean, I love you. That wasn't my goal. I wasn't trying to make you sad. I was just trying to help you, but... Man, my letter made you sad. That made me sad. I wished I hadn't written it. At least at first, I wished I hadn't written it. And that's why that verse goes on and says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. So there came a point where Paul repented of his repenting. Um, He repented of having written the letter. In other words, he's like, man, I wish I hadn't done that. Man, I wish that that wouldn't have had that effect in him. Man, I wish that what I said to him wouldn't have wouldn't have turned them that way. Man, that's not what I intended. And then eventually, as we read already, and we'll see in just a minute, the Corinthians ultimately repent to the Lord, and they get right with God, and Paul's like, yeah, okay, I'm not sorry anymore. I'll repent of that repenting, and we're all good now, right? It's really kind of like you who are parents understand this, and sometimes we make a joke about it, but there's truth to it. It's like the parent that has to discipline his child, has to spank his kid, for example, and, and he'll say something like this, now this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And the kid's like, yeah, well, let's switch roles. I mean, you know. <laughs> but all joking aside, there's some truth to that. I mean, parents don't discipline their kids to hurt them. They do it, they do it to help them, right? That's why they do it. And it's natural to feel bad immediately when you know, communicating a rebuke to somebody else. That's not just your favorite kind of launch into a conversation, right? But there's sometimes that the Scriptures demand that you do it. And that's something you have to realize. You have to do it sometimes to be obedient to the Lord. That's what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 2 where it says, preach the word. That's a command, by the way. And exactly how are you going to do that? He says, be instant in season, out of season. Be ready to preach the word at all times, whether it seems to be the season for it or not. And here's how it's going to play out. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. And you've heard it said before that, you know, two-thirds of all biblical preaching ought to be negative. Reprove and rebuke. And then you've got the exhortation at the end. But the idea is just this. There comes a time where the minister of Jesus Christ is required, if he's going to be obedient, he's required to put forth some truth that's going to be a rebuke. It's going to be a correction. It's going to be a reproof. And the minister of Jesus Christ has to come to terms with that. He has to come to terms with the fact that obedience to God is actually more important than sparing somebody's feelings. Now, we're going to get to a balancing point because the truth of the matter is I'm not advocating, nor should anybody consider advocating, joining the Jerks for Jesus Club. (laughs) 
and being self-righteous about it because we've all known people like that and we don't like them, right? And uh, so that's not what we're talking about. But the idea is, is that sometimes you're doing the right thing and somebody's going to get twisted and you're like, well, I, I hate it, I do, but I have to do the right thing. And so Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 10, for example, Paul makes this statement, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So if you carry out your ministry, and by the way, there are church growth experts writing books and making millions of dollars in this country, in this world, that are writing books about how you can set up a ministry that will be huge, and all they're doing is pleasing men. All they're doing is tickling their ears. All they're doing is telling them what they want to hear and giving them self-help, feel-good stuff. And by doing that, they disqualify themselves from actually being a minister of Jesus Christ. Communicating a rebuke to somebody else is hard. And especially when you actually love that person, right? Some people so despise the idea of confrontation over difficult subjects, they just never do it. They run and they hide and they leave it unsaid and they do anything else except do it. They throw money at it. They bring other people involved. They just stay away from it because personally, something in their construct, they're like, man, I just can't. Okay, I get it. It's hard. Not everybody's wired exactly the same way. But obedience at times requires it. And so people who are avoiding the confrontation like the plague are not necessarily doing you a favor. And they're not doing themselves a favor either because while they're thinking and hoping that by just not saying anything, they're never going to appear to be the bad guy. By not having the truth communicated and in love, well, they also never get the opportunity to be the good guy. They never get to be the opportunity that allows the Lord to work through the truth that can bring real change in the lives of other people. We need to not forget what God said in Isaiah 55, 11, well-known scripture. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I, the Lord, please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. The Lord's word does the Lord's work. And whether you see it immediately on the face of the person you're talking to now or ever doesn't matter. God's word presented in context in the right way is going to do what the Lord intends. And that's what we need to keep in mind because, again, communication is critical in any relationship. And we're talking only about this first point, the negative communication, the tough communication. That's where Paul starts. So, because Paul understands this balance, right, that's why he could ultimately say, well, I'm not sorry anymore, right? Though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, I did, but I'm over it now. I'm, I'm back on, on track. And that's because Paul was focused on what we should be focused on, the resulting change to their lives so that they can glorify the Lord. Because once the Corinthians responded right, they weren't sad anymore. They were glad that it all got taken care of, right? And so neither was Paul. Why should he be? 
So it only lasted a short time. That's why that verse ends with, I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Okay, you felt bad for a little while, but thankfully you responded right. And that's the second point of our outline. And let me just say the second point is the place we're going to camp for a little bit. The last two we'll get through, don't worry. But the second one you really got to get, and that's to communicate your repentance, verses 9 through 11. He goes in and he says, now I rejoice. Again, he's not sorry anymore. He's not sad anymore. Now he's rejoicing. Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. That's very, very important. Now there can be rejoicing. Now there can be comfort in the soul of the Apostle Paul after having communicated a hard truth. Why? Not because I just enjoy, I, I rejoice that I made you sorry. No, that's not what he said. I'm not going to rejoice not that you were made sorry. I rejoice that you sorrowed to repentance. I'm looking for the end result of the sorrow, right? Because sorrow can bring change. It doesn't always bring change, as we'll see here in just a second. Sorrow can bring change. Bad news brings sorrow. And sorrow can be used to bring about change. Because when your sorrow, as a result of hearing some hard truth, drives you to seriously consider what's going on in your personal life, to the point where you realize, yeah, I messed up. It's time for a change. That's repentance. When that happens, well, mission accomplished. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. That's the goal, right? That's worth rejoicing over. That's the sorrow that's referred to in verse 9, after a godly manner, right? That you might receive damage by us in nothing. That's a weird little phrase, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. What exactly is he talking about? Well, Paul frequently talks about how that first letter was hard and how eventually he intends to make it back to Corinth. And when he arrives on the scene, right, he's like, man, I hope you guys got this all worked out because if you don't have all this worked out by the time I show up, now you guys make fun of me because I'm a little old man and I'm, you know, only this tall and I can't hardly see and, and you think my bodily presence is weak and all, but you wait till I show up. We'll straighten it out face to face. There's going to be some damage to be passed out if you don't get it right before I show up. Now, he's not making idle threats. He's just telling them it's going to be even worse if you put off getting right with God. And he's saying, but because you repented after a godly manner, you don't have to worry about the damage by us in anything. There's, none of that's going to take care of itself. This is similar to what Paul wrote in several other places. Specifically, I want you to notice 2 Corinthians chapter 2, first four verses, where he says, But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? If I made you sorry, man, I feel bad about that, but how am I going to get glad again? Well, you get right, and then I'll be fine too. We'll all be good. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. And so Paul begins to set up 
this critical lesson. If there's a lesson in this chapter that you got to get, you got to get this lesson. And it comes in verses 10 and 11, and it basically sets up a very important comparison and contrast. So in your notes, I set it up like a table. And so on the left side of your table, the first thing, because I know the blanks look the same right now, is this, godly sorrow brings life. The left side of your table, godly sorrow brings life. And that's literally what it says, that the, the godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Once you get that taken care of, there's no need to repent of that decision. You receive Christ as your Lord, you're ever going to repent of that? That'd be foolish. No, listen, this is the decision that brings life. Salvation is life. Amen. But verse 10 goes on, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So on the right side of the column, worldly sorrow brings death. You need to see that the Lord is very clear that all sorrow is not the same. All sorrow is not created equal, right? There are two categories. You have godly sorrow and you have worldly sorrow. And godly sorrow brings life and worldly sorrow brings death. The worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that most people are very familiar with. This is the thing that brings emotional distress, worry, anxiety, depression. And depending upon the severity and the circumstances, well, it'll lead you to an early grave. That's what will happen. But what you need to understand is, is it's not about your emotions. It's not about how you feel in the moment. It's all about what are you going to do with it when you get the truth? What are you going to do with the truth that's been presented to you? And that's why it's important for you to be in church weekly. That's why it's important for you to hear the preaching of God's Word. That's why it's important for you to be reading the Bible regularly and talking to the Lord regularly because you can't shut down the communication. You need to let the Lord speak to you even if it's hard. You need to speak to Him even if it's hard. You need to do it to keep that relationship healthy. So let me explain the difference in a little more detail. Back to the left side of the chart. The godly sorrow is you being sorry for who you are. It's you being sorry for who you are. And we have, you know, some examples of that. The Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 5. This is the story of Isaiah where he gets that vision up in the third heaven and he's before the throne of God and the cherubim are singing holy, holy. And, and this, this is the story that's going on. And so he sees this great vision and, you know, the Lord says, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And the immediate response of Isaiah in the presence of a holy God is this, verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the exact same kind of reaction that we get from Job in Job 42 and verse number 6 because this is the end of the story of Job. If you're familiar with Job, right, he had all the wealth and riches and pleasures of life and the devil makes a deal with the Lord and he allows the devil to take away all his stuff and his family and he goes through this terrible time and he's got these miserable friends that give him terrible counsel and if you feel bad for yourself, read Job, feel better about yourself. But by the time you get to the very end, you're reading along and you're thinking, man, Job is, man, God bless him. He's doing the best he can. C circumstances are stacked against this boy. But at the very end, he, 
he really does cross the line with the Lord, and he really does blow it. And finally, the Lord himself steps in, about chapter 38, 39, 40, 40. And then he, the Lord starts telling Job all of Job's problems. And when Job, note, I want you to get this, just like Isaiah, when Job heard from the Lord, because Job's friends had been riding him and riding him and riding him. You got problems because you're a sinner. You got problems because you're unrighteous. You got problems because you're a hypocrite. You got problems because you're a fake. The truth of the matter is those weren't true. And they didn't affect Job at all. But when Job heard from the Lord, in verse 6 of chapter 42, he says, Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He repented for who he was, not something that he did. Isaiah repented for who he was, vile, filthy, profane, in the presence of pure, righteous holiness. That's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow hears the message directly from the Lord. It doesn't matter if he uses a human to present it to you. You hear it from the Lord, and you repent of who you are. But that's not worldly sorrow. You think, I think you know the next blank's on the right side. The worldly sorrow is you're just sorry for what you did. You're sorry for what you do. You're sorry that you got caught. Prisons are full of people with worldly sorrow. Oh, man, dang. I almost made it. They're sorry they got caught. But given half a chance, they'd do it again. They'd just be smarter this time, right? They haven't repented for who they are. That's the repentance, well, that leads to death. They regret, well, they receive this message. They receive some version of condemnation or judgment. They receive some sort of a rebuke. They receive it only from other men. And when you receive whatever it is that's being communicated to you only from men, if it's only from men, it kind of, you kind of don't care. I mean, you kind of take it and let it go. But when you know it's the Lord, you're like, wait a minute. I've got to stop here a second. I've got to think about this one. Well, listen. Let me give you some Bible examples. Back to the left side of the column. A ex- great example of repenting over who you are is the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, and in Matthew 26, we have the story where, you know, he denies Jesus three times, and then he, you know, the cock crows, and he finally realizes what Jesus said is right, and he said he'd never deny him, but then Jesus said, you're gonna, and then he did. And uh, what you have here is a situation where he says in Matthew 26, 75, when that happened, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus which said unto him, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And what did he do? And he went out, and he wept bitterly. He repented. He was so sorry for who he was before the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Peter. Peter's the guy who would have boasted, Lord, I'll forsake you. I'll never forsake you. Lord, I'll go all the way with you. And Jesus like, no, Pete, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. And he was sure that he would. He was very self-confident. And then he realized, yeah, I'm, I'm just as bad as everybody else. I, th- I thought these other losers would forsake him. But I'm the big loser. I've forsaken him too. But you know what? That repentance of Peter, that brought renewed life. Because it wasn't that much longer, right? Because then Jesus is crucified, buried, resurrected, and he's in his resurrected body. 
And Peter goes back to his profession. He goes back to fishing. He's back by the seaside at the end of the Gospel of John. You know the story. And Jesus is on the shore, and he's frying up a fish, and Peter's out there, and he sees Jesus, and he jumps out of the boat, and he swims in real fast, and Jesus is there, and they're pretty sure it's Jesus, but they didn't want to say nothing, you know, and Jesus frying up a fish, and he says, hey, Pete, look, uh, lovest thou me more than these? I'm going to give you another chance, Pete. Do you love me more than you love the fish or your profession or any of the other stuff going on in this world? And Peter's... He's broken. He's like, Lord, you know that I love you. Well, feed my sheep. Then he waits a minute. I don't know how long. And he says, he says it again. Lovest thou me more than these, Peter? And man, Lord, you know I, I love you. He said, well, go feed my lambs. Well, then Jesus comes back a third time, right? And people like to make mention of the fact that, well, Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus restored him three times. And Ultimately, who's the Apostle Peter? You go forward a few weeks past the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and in the Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, and Peter's the guy who's doing all the preaching. Peter's the guy who's leading the crowd. Peter's the guy who's standing up in front of everybody and proclaiming the word of the Lord. Listen, this kind of repentance in Peter's life brought renewed life to him because he recognized who he was. And he needed to radically change. But on the other side of the column, an example of worldly sorrow bringing death, that's Judas Iscariot. And you know the story of Judas, right? Judas was one of the apostles also. But he's the guy who ultimately then kissed Jesus on the cheek and turns him over to the, to the officials so that he can be beaten and ultimately tried and crucified. I mean, it was Judas that betrayed Jesus at this unbelievable juncture. And you go a few verses down from that verse we read about Peter at the end of Matthew 26 and the beginning of Matthew 27, verse number 3, it says this. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, when he realized he was busted, repented himself. And brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. And he went and he hanged himself. Because he was just sorry that he got caught. He was sorry that it didn't work out. And worldly sorrow brings death. And that's Judas Iscariot. Oh, I could give you other stories from the Bible. We could talk about the prodigal son. The prodigal son that went off and wasted his father's goods and riotous living. And ultimately, he comes to the end of himself and he repents of who he is. Luke 15, 18, And I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. That's the right attitude. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And you know the story. The father runs and embraces him and throws a party. Man, my son was lost and now he's found. That's godly sorrow. Works repentance to salvation, to life. But you get a guy in the Old Testament like Pharaoh who constantly did stupid stuff and was sad when it didn't work out his way. Like in Exodus 9, 27, Pharaoh sent, called after Moses. This is during the plagues, right? 
and said unto them, I have sinned this time. I sinned this time. It's not like I am a sinner. All right, all right, I kind of probably went a little far on this one. Nope. What did that bring to Pharaoh? It brought death. It brought death. Think about it for a second. Both Judas and Simon Peter were apostles. They both healed people. They both ministered to the Lord. They both walked with Jesus for three and a half years. They were both baptized with the baptism of John. They both betrayed Jesus. They both repented. They both confessed. And they both made restitution. But Peter's repentance was godly. And he's with the Lord today. Eternal life. And Judas' repentance was worldly. And he went, the Bible says, to his own place. Eternal death. His own place is not the Lord's place prepared for him. It's hell, which Matthew 25, 41 says, is prepared for the devil and his angels. Judas went to his own place. You see, this is the difference, and you need to get this. Again, we're going to spend a lot of time on point number two because this is so important. This is the difference between conviction and guilt. You have to get this. This will help you in your life. The difference between conviction and guilt. How do you know? You're feeling that stirring inside. You're hearing a little voice. How do you know when it's God convicting you of sin? Or it's the devil trying to make you feel guilty for your sin? How do you know the difference? Well, worldly sorrow brings guilt, right? A person under worldly sorrow may say something like this. I've made a mess of things. I've ruined my life. My life's messed up. I'm doomed. I can't do anything anymore. I'm a failure. I've never been anything. I wish I was dead. You see, the end of that road of just feeling guilty is death. The end of that road is I'm useless. I'm a failure. Why bother? I might as well quit. If the end result of whatever it is you're thinking you're hearing is causing you to consider stopping and quitting and turning it in and not walking with the Lord anymore, that's the devil because that's what he wants you to do. But conviction of sin is different. Guilt is very general. You're generally useless. But conviction is very specific. The Lord will put his finger on your life in that specific area, and he's like, um, yo, Jeff, we got to get this cleaned up. I mean, you might have other issues, but for now, let's just, let's just do this one. And if you'll take care of this one, well, we'll just, we'll be fine. We'll move on. We'll do just great. So godly sorrow brings conviction of sin, specific A guy feeling godly sorrow is still going to feel bad. He might say something like this. I've never been any good. I'm no good right now. I'm never going to be any good. At my very best, I'm probably not worth shooting. Unless God does something for me and to me and with me, I'll never be worth a dime. So from now on, I'm just going to trust the Lord alone. You see the difference? As a result, I'm going to stop trusting in me. 
and I'm just going to trust in him, and I'm going to turn it over to him. It's the conclusion that leads you to trust God and to change. That's from the Lord. That's godly conviction. So with worldly sorrow, you work to straighten things out yourself, and that never works. But with godly sorrow, you surrender and ask God to take care of the details. And that always works. That always works. So there's some life-giving results of godly sorrow. And I'm just going to read through that list in verse 11 quickly and, and just give you some thoughts. So careful to do right. You're, now you're careful as a result of that kind of repentance to salvation to do what's right. And the clearing of themselves by showing their disapproval of sin, you're released from that sorrow. You're indignant, you're angry over the sin and the failure. The fear of God is, has grown in you, and you no longer have the fear of man or the fear of public opinion. You just fear God and you want to please Him. What vehement desire to get things right. What zeal to carry out that vehement desire. And what revenge, which ultimately will be meted out against the devil, but in the meantime, you could say it was demonstrated in the legitimate biblical application of church discipline to that guy that was referred to in 1 Corinthians 5 who was in, you know, adultery, fornication, sexual sin. Um, that kind of revenge, by the way, is not personal. Uh, it's holy. It's holy. So speaking hard truth to people can have positive results. Amen? But for that to happen, you have to communicate it the right way. You have to have the right motivation, and that's point number three. Communicate your reason. This is verse number 12. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did, not, did it not for his cause that had done the wrong. Again, the context is that guy in 1 Corinthians 5. Nor for his cause that suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Paul has the opportunity here to communicate the reason behind why he had to communicate the rebuke, right? So the guy who was caught in adultery with his stepmom, yeah, I know, it's weird. And they ultimately disciplined him out of the church as a result of Paul pointing that out back in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's telling them now, specifically in a historical context, look, I didn't write what I wrote back there to take sides. I didn't write it to take sides with the guy that was the abuser or to take sides with the guy who was the victim. I wrote it to show you all how much I love you all. That's what I did. So the church would know that he loved them. That's what he said. This is Paul applying Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. So speaking the truth in love, that's the reason. That's what you should do. You should do that, by the way, because it's the right thing to do. That's how, anytime you have to speak the truth and the truth is tough, you should always do it in love, whether or not you ever get the opportunity to explain your reason or not. You do it because it's the right thing to do. That's why you do it. So 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, Let all your things be done with charity. Whether or not the people ever know it or not, it's just the right thing to do. And at the end of the day, you can say God is the witness. I mean, you may never be a witness to the fact of my motivation, but God is. And that's the type of thing that Paul said to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3. 
For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, obviously, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. In other words, you may not ever recognize or realize the real reason and motivation behind what we do and how we do it. But you know what? I can rest and I can get comfort from the fact that God knows. God knows why I did it. He knows that I did it with the right reason. And whether you get that chance or whether you don't get that chance, I mean, when you first present a rebuke to somebody, listen, I get it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hit them kind of like a shock. They're probably going to be a little put off. They may get ticked. They may walk away and not talk to you again. All kind of different responses could occur. What you need to do is just make sure that your reason is right, right? Make sure that you're doing it for the right reason. But like Paul, sometimes you actually do get a chance to tell them what your true motivation is. And if they respond right, godly repentance, godly sorrow to repentance, well, then everybody's restored to fellowship together, right? They're restored to fellowship with God. They're restored to fellowship with you and Well, they're in a position to finally understand after the repentance. They're in a position to finally understand that, well, a rebuke can actually communicate love. It actually can. And and this is hard for teenagers to understand. It's hard for immature adults to understand. But it can be that way. Jesus Christ, in his brief letter to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19, says this, As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten. Uh, If you're not receiving rebuke or chastening from the Lord at some point, I mean, you might want to check. You might want to check yourself, because he, if he loves you, he's going to rebuke and chasten you at times. We all blow it. We all need it. So the goal of doing it is not for him just to say, "Well, you know, I'm holy and you're not." No, he wants us to repent. That's why that verse goes on and says, "Be zealous, therefore, and repent." I love you. I'm trying to communicate with you. I'm trying to help clean you up, right? So let's take care of it. Uh, to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, 5 through 8, again, talking about the, the discipline, the chastisement of the Lord, it says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you, as unto children. Again, this is just good parenting, y'all. As unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Rhetorical question. There are none. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, well, then you're not sons at all. The Bible says you're bastards and not sons. You're not actually legitimately a part of God's family. If you call the name of Jesus Christ and you say that God is your heavenly Father and you say that you've been born again and He's taken your feet out of the miry clay and set them on the solid rock and you've been changed and you're made new and the Spirit of God lives in you and you can continue to live your life and filthy, vile, selfish sin over and over and over and never receive 
rebuke and chastisement from the Lord. You just get away with it. Life is just, hey, man, I, you know, I bought my get-out-of-hell-free card. I prayed that little prayer when the guy talked to me. Then I forgot about it ever since, and I'm living for me, baby. You live your life that way, and trouble doesn't come your way? Um, friend, you might need to revisit that salvation thing. You might need to revisit that salvation thing. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And you don't want to blow that one. Think about it for a second. Okay, the reason is you care. The reason is that's why people communicate these things. And we don't love communicating challenging rebukes and that sort of thing, but let me, let me just throw this out to you. If you didn't care, if you, if you truly didn't care about the other person, would you bother even telling them? I mean... Is it worth arguing and fighting and getting mad for nothing? If truly you just don't care, just go do your thing, man. Just do it over there. I don't, I don't care. But if you care, well, then you're willing to risk the rift. You're willing to risk the misunderstanding. You're willing to risk the sorrow. Because it might bring godly sorrow and repentance. Because you care. Last point. This won't take long. Communicate your relief. Several verses. It's just the story as we wrap up this story of how they responded and how well it went. Therefore, he says, we were comforted in your comfort. So they were comforted after they got comforted from the Lord. Paul gets comforted. A lot of comfort going around. Yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we, for the joy of Titus was comforted. Man, this is great. Because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, there he's communicating the truth. Even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. In other words, I sent Titus to check up on you guys. And, and I was like, hey, Titus, go check up on him. But man, these are good dudes. They're not bad dudes. These are good dudes, you know. And he's like, Wow. Good job, you responded right. Awesome, way to go. So what I boasted about you, it turns out it was true, thank you. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you now himself, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, right? They're turning from sin. How with fear and trembling you received him, I rejoice therefore that I have confidence in you in all things. So, you know, a rebuke lasts for a night, but relief comes in the morning, right? to sort of paraphrase a verse from the Psalms. Paul sends Titus to check on them. Titus is encouraged that they're doing great. They're obeying the Scriptures. Paul's encouraged to hear about the obedience and the love and the acceptance, and everything's going good. And man, now he says, I have confidence in you in all things. Why? Because they've proven themselves to be of such character to receive bad news Look inwardly and respond properly. And once you've proven yourself to be that way, well, then other brothers and sisters are going to have confidence in you. And some people say, well, why doesn't anybody have confidence in me? Well, I don't know. Why is that? Have you proven that you're the kind of person that can receive a rebuke? Look inwardly. Take it from the Lord, not just from some carnal guy who wants to get in your face. And make the real change necessary. 
because they made it through the thing successfully, Paul's like, yeah, man, I trust you guys. Good job. This is the same kind of response Paul got from some of his favorite Christians on the planet. His favorite church is the Philippian church, right? And so in Philippians 2.12, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the Corinthians obeyed the Lord with fear and trembling, and now they're on the other side of it. God's working in them. I mean, face it, hard times make us better, right? That's Romans 5, 3 through 5, right? We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience, patience experience, experience hope, hope makes not ashamed, right? Why? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So who likes tribulations? Nobody likes tribulations, but we know that God uses them to work all things together for good. We know that we can glory in those things. We know that hard times make us better, right? What's the, what's the common phrase, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Uh, it's that kind of a deal, right? What happens in this context is it's strengthening relationships. If they're handled with maturity, right, going through a hard time together with a brother or sister can bring levels of comfort that you could have never experienced without the hard times. They can produce levels of unity and joy that you could have never had otherwise, couple of verses and we'll be done. Philippians 2 starts off. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So there's something about this unity being knit together that brings comfort of love. Colossians 2, same thing. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, how? Being knit together in love. And unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Listen, there is no comfort like the comfort of love that comes when brothers and sisters in Christ who had been at odds are now knit together and comforted together because whenever that day comes it makes all the trouble and the conflict worth it it was worth it life stunk for a while i hated it for a while i probably let it go longer than i should have but i would have never learned this lesson and i'm so thankful to have learned this lesson and to walk with the lord so let's wrap this up i got a question for you what about you where are you at in this story I mean, we're just going to take a minute, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to be done. But where are you at in this story? Are you a person who finds himself or herself currently struggling with sin, habitual sin in your life? You're miserable. You're currently receiving some form of rebuke. Maybe that's coming from another person. Maybe the Lord himself has spoken to you today. I don't know. But if you find yourself at odds with holiness today, Can I encourage you to take the step that the Scriptures tell us to take? Respond with godly sorrow. Repent of who you are. Realize you are nothing. I am nothing. So quit trying. Turn it over to the Lord. Surrender it all to Him and ask Him to make you new. But maybe you're okay with the Lord, but you're involved in ministry and you have friends and 
brothers and sisters, and you see that they might be self-destructing, and you want to help them, and you're not sure how to help them, and would you consider loving them enough to have a conversation? Would you consider going to them with a truth that might be perceived as a rebuke, that might bring some sorrow for now, but ultimately can bring true repentance? And whether they do or whether they don't, you will be obedient to the Lord in doing that. Would you love your neighbor enough to do something like that? Because I think there's a lot of people that get twisted with one another within the body of the church, and they just decide, it's a big enough church, it's a big enough town. I can just sit over here, and you can sit over there, and I don't have to look at you, and you don't have to look at me, and I'm just going to let her ride, and we'll let God work it out. Let me just tell you, that's horrible planning. It's horrible. God wants us to be different. Healthy relationships exist in open communication. You need to speak the truth. And you need to speak it in love. You don't want to get that out of balance. But you got to keep talking. You got to keep talking. And let the Lord take his word so that it doesn't return void.